Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the science of proteins and child psychology and deception. But first up, here's the news. First it was real and fake fireworks and real and fake singing for the Olympics. Now the Chinese have real and fake space launches. They really did launch people into space and bring them back safely, but they also faked it. Xinhua.net, the official news agency of the Chinese regime, managed to publish an article about the successful launch of the manned mission and how it progressed in flowing poetic description, two days before the actual launch. Normally they automatically delete the fake articles if people have caught on, but this time they were forced to publicly apologise because the article had been published by many websites and was already widely discussed. Previously, you've had pictures of the Blessed Virgin Mary appearing on the nun bun. You've had pictures appearing on toast. You've been able to get your very own nun bun by getting a little toast press that lets you get a perfect picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary on every slice of toast, ready to sell on eBay. And in the very origins of the internet, we used to have internet-connected toasters just to prove the concept that you could connect anything up to the net. Well, now we have an internet-connected toaster that prints your design in toast. It can burn anything onto your morning slice, from the news to the weather. The scan toaster connects to a PC, downloads the headlines from RSS, prints them out on your toast, ready for you to read before you eat. Too bad if you use butter. We are all much more closely related than we ever thought. DNA research being conducted in America and Russia suggests that the human gene pool almost ran dry 70,000 years ago, when the population fell as low as just a few thousand people. We could have easily been wiped out completely by an epidemic or a disaster. Researchers have found that all humans have almost identical DNA, whereas one of our closest relatives, chimpanzees, are very diverse. One group of chimps, for example, can feature more genetic diversity than all 6 billion humans on the planet today. The research was published in the American Journal of Human Genetics and advances the theory that modern humans must be descended from one very small group of ancestors who lived in Africa just 70,000 years ago. For comparison, consider that the fossil record shows that humans have lived in Australia since at least 40,000 years ago. They argue that the human population has fallen to numbers as low as 2,000 at that point, dwelling on the very brink of extinction 70,000 years ago in Africa. Professor Michael Archer, 
Dean of Science at the University of New South Wales, says these people have been looking at microsatellite markers in the DNA, and these are little tiny sections of DNA that are actually changing very fast. And they're trying to get a group on how much variation is in the human population and how long ago you can wind it back to, say, you know, one common ancestor. They're saying about 70,000 years ago, we must have gone through some kind of bottleneck. There must have been some event in Africa, some crisis, maybe a disease, something really whittled our numbers right down to maybe no more than 2,000 people. And these 2,000 came through this crisis with reduced variation and then went on again to repopulate the world with human beings. But humans that no longer had the huge amount of genetic variation that we would have had if you compare us to, say, chimps, we should have had much more variation than we've got. Geomorphologist Jim Bowler from the University of Melbourne says that if, as this hypothesis claims, modern humans originated only 70,000 years ago in Africa and then migrated across the world, and there were initially only 2,000 of them, that has immense implications for the study of archaeology in Australia. This makes Australia one of the best places in the world to test the hypothesis. It would take a few thousand years, certainly, for people to migrate in the diffusion process from Africa to Australia. Now, we know that modern people were here in Australia at 40,000 years ago. We know that stone tools are present at 50,000 years ago, both in the Northern Territory, Western Australia, and at Lake Mungo, where Mungo Man was discovered. This implies that this continent was fully occupied by 50,000 years. Now, there's every chance that considerably older occupation will be found in Australia. And Jim Bowler said he wouldn't be surprised to find occupation back to 60 or even 70,000 years, which, of course, will be the end of the debate about when and where humans evolved. And as Professor Michael Archer points out, if modern humans pushed the edge of survival 70,000 years ago, what's to stop it happening again? There's a huge vulnerability to being human. We can't presume because we've been here for 70,000 years, some would argue as much as 300,000 years as a species, that we're going to go on forever. But it also means that we're very closely related, all of us. 2,000 is a very small number to start from. It's smaller than a city. It's as small as maybe a town. So if we're all related 70,000 years ago to a group of 2,000 people, it means we're all really extended family. And we should start thinking that way when we start working out how to apportion things and how to make deals with each other. Suggestions made to people in trance can not only change the way they act, but also the way they feel. Now we will look at techniques that can be used to go much further to change a person's fundamental belief system and change it for life. Training your mind can alter your DNA. We've now moved beyond studies showing that mental training alters the structure and function of the brain to studies showing that it alters the structure and function of your genes. So you can no longer say, my genes made me do it. Because the genes in our cells don't matter one little bit if they're not switched on. There are many things in life that can turn off bad genes, such as the genes that increase the risk of diseases such as breast cancer. 
Last year, New York State started telling 31 private companies that they need licenses to take DNA samples from state residents. And in June, California sent cease and desist orders to 13 of the companies with the same message. Personal DNA scans can't really tell you as much as the companies would like you to think. Reading what genes a person has is old hat. They're not really going to predict their future. Determining which genes are switched on is where the action is. A study in rats showed in 2004 that the way a mother rat treats her pups determines whether genes related to neuroticism and fearfulness are switched on or switched off. Now there's a study that looks at a connection between genes and environment in humans. Now, this is not about mothering, but about meditation and hypnosis and what's known as the relaxation response. Back in the 1960s, Herbert Benson of Harvard Medical School coined this term, the relaxation response, to refer to the opposite of the stress response, which floods the body with stress hormones, raises blood pressure, and elevates heart rate. In contrast, the relaxation response is a state of deep rest that decreases metabolism, relaxes muscles, slows heart rate, and lowers blood pressure. Over the years, Benson and colleagues developed a surefire way to elicit the relaxation response. This method basically consists of repeating a word or phrase of your choice, like a mantra, or repeating a muscle movement of any kind, while letting go of everyday thoughts that drift through your mind. You just need to stay in this relaxed state, not attaching or indulging in any of the memories or ideas that come through your mind, for about 20 minutes a day to see significant health benefits. Now they've figured out how it works, to among other things treat hypertension, high blood pressure, alleviate pain, and even help with infertility and rheumatoid arthritis. The relaxation response alters which genes associated with the body's response to stress are switched on and which are off. As Benson said in a statement, we've found how changing the activity of the mind can alter the way basic genetic instructions are implemented. It's being billed as the first comprehensive study of how the mind can affect gene expression. And by mind, they mean mental practices such as meditation and prayer, which are among the techniques used by the 19 long-term practitioners of the relaxation response who were studied, along with 19 volunteers who had never tried. After the volunteers who'd never tried went through eight weeks of training, the scientists compared before and after patterns of gene expression and found that mental training does alter the expression of genes involved in inflammation in the form of cell suicide called apoptosis, which can keep damaged cells from forming cancers, and in how the body handles the damaging of free radicals. DNA is no longer our destiny. Even thinking can change it. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Earlier, I spoke with Ben Herbert, Director of the Proteomics Technology Centre of Expertise, explaining the science and technology of proteins and proteomics. My name's Ben Herbert, and I'm the Director of the Proteomics Technology Centre of Expertise in the Science Faculty. So that's up on the sixth floor in the Department of Medical and Molecular Biosciences. And what is proteomics? Proteomics was a word that was coined by Mark Wilkins at Macquarie University back in the mid-90s, and it was coined to describe a whole suite of technologies for analysing proteins. And a proteome is really the protein 
equivalent of a genome. So a genome is your complete suite of genes, of DNA, and a proteome is the whole group of proteins that come from that group of genes. If you turned all the genes on at once and made proteins, that would be the proteome. So the interesting thing about proteomes is an organism has one genome, so a human has one genome, but it produces huge numbers of different proteomes. So when you think about it, your your hair has a particular proteome, your skin does, and every other organ in your body has a different proteome, and your genes essentially are static, but your proteome is dynamic. You change it all the time. Every time you eat, you change. When you grow, when you differentiate from an embryo to a fully grown organism, And that's true for all sorts of organisms. So even the simplest organisms, like bacteria, have dynamic proteomes. They have static genomes, but dynamic proteomes. So people use proteomics to look at what changes are occurring as an organism grows and differentiates, or a lot of the time they look at something that's diseased or abnormal and compare it to what you might consider to be normal. And... So proteomics is that group of technologies that lets you extract the proteins out of whatever it is you want to look at, separate them, and then go through and systematically analyse the ones that you can see are different. So there's a whole lot of different technologies that allow you to do that, and people apply it to everything from coral bleaching on the barrier reef. So we work with a group in environmental here, Peter Ralph's group looking at coral bleaching. So a student takes coral from the barrier reef up in Townsville. He puts some in a warm tank, some in a a normal temperature tank, and then goes away and analyzes and looks at protein differences in, in the hope of understanding what's going on. People look at it in a way of understanding all types of human diseases. So we work with groups on heart failure, we've worked with groups on cancer, and the Institute for the Biotechnology of Infectious Diseases here at UTS uses proteomics a lot to look at what's going on when pathogens invade the body. So we've got people looking at cell division and bacteria, we've got people looking at liver flukes, at animal pathogens like Imeria in chickens, So it's a pretty broad platform. People use proteomics for just about any type of organism. And how is it that you actually extract the proteins? There's a whole range of different mechanisms that you can use, but mostly the samples need to be ground up. So if they're in the form of a tissue, you you grind it up to a powder, and we do that usually just in a really old-fashioned piece of technology, the mortar and pestle. We grind it up in liquid nitrogen, and then... It can be as simple as extracting in water, all the way through to quite complicated cocktails of chemicals designed to help the protein solubilise and stay in solution. So the most common that everybody will have heard of is detergent. And detergent, in the sense of protein, does exactly the same as detergent does when you're cleaning your dishes at home. It binds to proteins that may not be particularly soluble, like proteins that maybe are in the membranes of cells, and it helps them to solubilise. And there are a bunch of other chemicals, like urea is the most common, and what that does is it interferes with the hydrogen bonding of proteins and it helps them to unfold and go into solution and then stay in solution. 
So the only way you can really analyse anything in, in proteomics is by making sure the proteins are actually soluble. If they're not soluble, you can't analyse them and separate them. And once you've made them soluble, how do you look at them? Most organisms, unless they're extremely simple, produce a very, very complicated proteome. And so you need to separate the proteins out. Now, one of the most common methods of doing that is called electrophoresis. And electro, as the name suggests, you use an electric field. And the proteins are charged. And the electric field makes the proteins migrate. And what they're migrating in is basically a jelly. And in the lab, we can create a gel with a very defined pore size. And it behaves like a molecular sieve. So you use the electric field to force the proteins through this molecular sieve, and of course the small ones move more than the large ones. The large ones are held back much more than the small ones, so you get a separation, and everybody who's seen a science program on television has probably seen a scientist looking at an image of a whole bunch of bands. And you can use this type of technology to separate DNA, RNA and proteins. So you're just sieving them in this gel. In proteomics, what you can do with those separated proteins is actually cut them out of the gel and take them off now and analyse them. So the gel has really just been used to give you a fractionation, to separate that really complex mixture and make it less complex and make it so that you can compare patterns. So you can look at the pattern of bands that you get and say, well, these are the normal samples, here are the disease samples, what's different, let's cut the different ones out, and now we go off to a machine called a mass spectrometer. And really, all the mass spectrometer is doing is it's weighing the proteins, but it's weighing them down to the level of a tenth of a hydrogen atom. So once you take proteins and you break them into pieces, and you weigh all the pieces that accurately, you start to get a fingerprint for that protein which defines it and you can now say this is definitely protein X. And the reason you can do that is that almost every organism has been completely sequenced now at the genome level. So the big gene sequencing projects have produced these enormous databases of every gene sequence for lots of different bacteria and lots of other microorganisms like yeast as well as the major scientific model organisms, the plants, animals like fruit flies, rats, mice, and, of course, humans. So those databases of gene sequences, what they do is you can use those to predict what proteins are going to be present in the proteome, and when you get your mass spectrometry data from your real sample, you go off and compare that real data to the theoretical data in the database to allow you to figure out what proteins you've identified. So now you can complete the circle and go, okay, here's the list of proteins that I saw to be different, I've identified them, and now I can start to say, what do they do? Or I can go back to the organism and knock those genes out for those proteins and say, what happens to that organism if I knock those genes out? Uh, and, and so that's the types of things that people do. So you can find out sometimes what the proteins do by seeing what happens when they're not around. That's right, yeah. So you can say, uh, we saw these proteins were increased or they weren't there at all before and we suddenly saw them appear during the infection process or during heart failure. 
and you can say, okay, now maybe in an animal model, what happens if we take those genes and we perturb the genes, we, we knock them out altogether, does that cause heart failure or does it protect against infection or can we take those proteins and use them as targets for drugs? So they're the sorts of things that people are doing trying to understand how networks of proteins are involved in whatever process they want to look at. So what's the big challenge for you at the moment? Our lab is a core facility, so we are really there to provide expertise and the technology and the people who know how to use it to help other people do their projects. So to be relevant and to stay current, you need to be on top of what technology's out there and developing new technology. So our challenge is always to be looking at what types of things people want to do what sorts of proteins do they want to work on and be sure that we've got good technology to help people do that. You know, there's no point providing a service that is 10 years out of date and nobody wants to use that technology or it's not sensitive enough. So you need to be making sure that you're on top of that. My background is in technology development. So when I moved to Australia from New Zealand 13 years ago, I went to Macquarie and got involved in technology development there and I was involved in technology development in a company called Proteome Systems after that and before I came to UTS, and, and now my group has continued that. We have an industry partner, a company called BioRad, who is a big U.S. company based in California who they have a, a large share of the world market for proteomics and, and life sciences, and we work with them to develop technology and hopefully bring that to market. We get involved in testing some of their new products, so we often get early access to new technologies as they come through. Well, Ben Herbert, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Ben Herbert, Director of the Proteomics Technology Centre of Excellence at the University of Technology, Sydney. Here's our favourite hypnotherapist, Melinda Hawking. So, Melinda, you were telling me there's lots of deception in the playground that you've seen. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, as a parent... Um, you're frequently told that um, Johnny said something or Jane said something, whatever. And there's, there is massive amounts of deception in the playground. Kids aren't always entirely truthful with each other or with their parents or with the teachers, for that matter. Are they good liars? Oh, some of them are extraordinary. Some of them are fantastic. As a scout leader, because I also um, do scouts, um, I'm a scout leader for the Joeys, which in Australia is the six-year-olds to eight-year-olds. So as a scout leader, we have lots of techniques to find out which kids are particularly good at bending the truth <laughs> or taking things that are just there, just to what they believe in. So these kids that are really good liars, do you think they're method actors, that they sort of believe what they're saying when they do it? That they're acting just because they know what to do? Or are they sort of almost deceiving themselves while they do it so that they're they believe it, like a method actor. They're a method actor. More, more often than not, they're a method actor. And mostly it's because they've had to believe what they want to achieve. So it's that, that whole believe it to achieve it scenario. Like with any actor at all, if you want to give a good performance, what you want, to, what you need to do is believe what you're doing. So if you wanted to make love to somebody, you had to believe that you really wanted to. And it's all about pointing your 
all your um, ideas in the right direction. Because I know I've seen you can get kids who fakely cry mm. based on what they remember and what they've seen of other children crying. So this is what crying, like, oh, and they'll, they'll, they'll make the noises and they'll, they'll do the whole thing, mm. but they're pretending. Yes. And then you get the kids who will think of every bad thing that's ever happened to them. That's right. And therefore they cry and, and it's a genuine tear. Yes. Yes. But they're still faking it because nothing real has happened in this instance. They've deliberately thought of everything bad that's ever happened to them. Yes, exactly right. And as I said, in Scouts we've got techniques to find out who... We have games, basically. We play games to see who's a good liar and who's not a good liar. And part of that is so that we get to understand how each child works in a little way. And we uh, assist them in bringing themselves together, bringing themselves um, more to the party so that they've got a lot to share and they can be more open and honest with us. Also so that we can tell when they're not. (laughs) Because it's one of those really important things. There's evolutionary psychologists who believe that part of the way we developed our self-awareness and grew our brain as big as it is, is because we're such social creatures that we had to try and model other people and mind read what others were doing and thinking so that we could tell when they were deceiving us and when they weren't, Mm. and in turn be able to model them well enough to deceive them. Yes. And so they couldn't catch us when we were... <laughs> doing something. Yeah, taking the last biscuit or something like that. No, I didn't take the last biscuit. <laughs> sort mm. of brain's arms race. Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly right. Um, and it's the, the children who eventually become, oh, I don't know, actors or politicians or something like that who can actually stand up and, and completely believe what they're believing in, what they're espousing. And it's those who will succeed in virtually any part of life. Because they can, as much as you can believe, if you can passionately believe in something, then you'll inevitably bring other people along with you. So what you need there is perhaps the the power to believe and the power to set that aside when it's not doesn't serve you. And <laughs> choose another belief. <laughs> choose another belief, which some people do. Thank you, Melinda. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise. If you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, Pie Man by Unicron's Revenge.
become a wife? Do you go when you know that the end of the world is nigh? Do you go when you need reliable and constant results? Do you go when you need to know the circumference of a circle in relation to its diameter? Who do you call? Just pick up the phone and dial. 